and host committee, including uh, my co-chair, Dr. Paul Livingood. If you're a member of the Richmond host committee, would you please stand? We, I know we have members just stand in the audience, and let's give them a round of applause. I'm very proud of my colleagues here in, in Richmond and how we've brought you to this community. I would also like to recognize uh, all of our sponsors. You find them inside the program, but especially our presenting sponsors, the Robbins Foundation that Terry mentioned earlier, but also the Richmond Metropolitan Convention and Visitors Bureau, uh, which has done a remarkable job. I haven't seen Jack Berry, the executive director uh, of the CVB, but they've really stepped up in a big way, not only uh, bringing you to this community, but also providing cash sponsorship. And of course, the sponsor of today's plenary address, the Virginia Foundation uh, for the Humanities. So let's once again give our sponsors a round of applause. The promise of remembrance. I would like to do a little exercise with you. I'd like for you to take just a second to think about a cherished memory, very quickly. Cherished memory. In just these few seconds, we have had hundreds of individual memories that have been made and stories that you have swirling through your head at this time. And if we recorded these memories uh, at this time, it would be part of not only individual memories, but it would be a collected uh, memory. And really, that could become, if recorded, part of the society in which we live, and it would have a great impact. Remembrance, that's what we do as public historians. Uh, that's what we do uh, as, uh, as ASLH. And today's speaker has both made individual and collective memories that could fill a library. And we're very pleased to have Dorothy Cotton with us today. Dorothy Cotton was the education director for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for 12 years. Working closely with Dr. King, Dorothy served on his executive staff and was actually part of the entourage that was with him in Oslo, Norway, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize. She also served as the vice president for field operations for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Center for Nonviolent Social Change in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Cotton was the director of student activities at Cornell University for nine years and served as the Southeastern Regional Director of Action, the federal government agency for volunteer programs for three years. She holds a master's degree from Boston University in the area of special education. Dorothy has designed and conducted training programs for corporations, schools, university, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations working with well over 100,000 participants through the years. She has delivered commencement speeches and has addressed students at hundreds of colleges and universities around the world, including the University of New England and Spelman College, both of which have uh, given her honorary doctorate degrees for her public work, as well as Stanford University, the Abercrombie uh, Academy, Brown University, City College of New Jersey, and many more. Dorothy was recently featured on the ABC special, The Century, with Peter Jennings. She's also spoken and traveled extensively throughout the world, including India, Africa, the People's Republic of China, Switzerland, uh, and the former Soviet Union, and Vietnam. Dorothy serves as a valuable resource to organizations on diverse topics addressing race relations, multiculturalism, diversity, communications, personal development, spiritual growth, human relations, citizenship education, civic organizing for the 21st century, and nonviolence education. And I saved this last little phrase for last because I think it's a, a, one of the more remarkable descriptors for a biographical sketch that I've ever read. Dorothy Cotton translates years of experience in learning into words 
and song-bearing message of hope. Through songs of the movement, laughter, and storytelling, Dorothy synthesizes the lessons from our history into a working vision for the future. Dorothy gets, uh, uh, gets to us, laugh, gets us to laugh, sing, and join together to create a more caring and humane world. Please help me welcome to the stage here in Richmond, Dorothy Cotton. Thank you very much for that warm introduction. And um, as I listened to that introduction, I said, uh, I've heard that before. I said, let me see, um, what, what am I going to do to live into that today? For example, uh, getting the audience to sing. For example, are you all ready? <laughs> well, uh, some of you, I'm sure, must know that uh, yeah, I, I really I don't know what we would have done without the freedom songs, without the singing, we sort of sang our way through a lot of the, the uh, uh, hot spots, challenging spots. We sang all the time and out of uh, different moods. And uh, anyway, but maybe a little bit more about that later. Um, but uh, I, I want to tell you, I say this almost every time someone asks me to, to share, to give a talk. Um, I was introduced by uh, cousin of mine uh, who uh, was living not far from where I lived. I went to this uh, school. It's one of those uh, state schools where the children are sort of under lock and key. And uh, the reason I like to tell it, because I heard uh, her, the comment I heard as I walked from my seat on the front row uh, still sort of, you know, rings with me. I say it almost every time. She heard an introduction sort of like you just heard. But this little girl said, think of this little state school. You know, it's kind of a pre-jail situation for these children. <laughs> I've said that before, and I never know why people laugh when I say it was pre-jail. But it, what, they're on the lock and key. You know, anybody know those kinds of schools? For children have, who've had some just horrendous uh, experiences. But this little girl said, as I was making my way to the podium and hearing the introduction, she said, and y'all still living? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also say uh, almost all the time in, in the beginning of sharing, uh, yeah, uh, I, I decided that there's some humor uh, in, in that, but also uh, it's, it's a very serious question, uh, a, a statement, an observation, a well question in her, in her case. But for me, to, to really take it seriously, to really think about it, became important to me. You know, for example, I developed a whole speech on uh, what, what does it mean to really and truly live? And, and that little girl's comment, uh, about a 12-year-old, as I was walking to the podium, uh, uh, pushed me to, to do that. Are you all still living? So I'm, I'm kind of throwing that out to, not kind of, throwing that out to you all. Uh, what is it to live? I've got a whole speech about that, but I'm not making that today. As a matter of fact, I've made so many notes since I had this invitation. I'm really just thrilled to be with you. 
And uh, <clears throat> I decided that I will not read a formal manuscript, but that I'd like to have a part of the time that I have to share with you to use a part of the time to have kind of a dialogue. I'd like to make sure that there would be some things on your mind that you might like to share, questions that you would like to uh, ask, and we'll see where we go. But I'll share uh, some thoughts uh, among my uh, scribblings here. Um, and I, I could read the whole speech, but I decided I don't want I don't want it to be that kind of time together. I hope that's okay with you. Um, I will read uh, the first bit of what I wrote. Um, I said, um, well, when I got the invitation, I really I'm excited, intrigued by uh, the the organization, and the theme chosen for this year's uh, conference commemoration the promise of remembrance and new beginnings. As I read information shared with me about the organization, uh, <clears throat> the American Association for State and Local History, uh, yeah, I thought about it. A and you see, um, I hated history when I was in school. <laughs> But you know why? Uh, the, my history teacher was also the basketball coach. And uh, so in his class, I, I remember that he always had his head down reading from a spiral notebook. And I'm convinced that he was reading his notes from some history class that he went through. And it was just incredibly boring for him to, you know, to spend the time. And I was so glad. This was in high school. I was so glad to get out of his class, and uh, but my, what a transformation that has occurred, uh, a transformation under which I have gone, and uh, is that grammatical? Uh, the transformation that has occurred for me, in me, relative to history and what it is, what it means, what it's about, uh, I realize that it's truly exciting, you know, just the very idea of really being into uh, times uh, gone by, and you know the things that we can learn, and even if we're not uh, reading something or studying it for any particular purpose, just because we've become excited about knowing what went on before, just because, as I said, it is indeed uh, exciting. Little did I know that there would indeed come a time when I would not only help to make history, contribute to an incredibly exciting and important historical event, but I would evolve to a point of excitedly studying historical events, I said that, you know, hungrily delving into the nature and meaning of many ancient and not so ancient historical events. Did any of you ever see history that way as boring and then have that kind of transformation? I bet some of you did. Some of you know or heard something of my childhood, that I was born in a poor, uh, they used to call them shotgun shacks, if you could see from the front straight through to the back, and uh, on Greenleaf Street in Goldsboro, North Carolina. And uh, my dad made $9 a week working in a tobacco factory. I'm giving away my age, you know that was during the Depression years, and uh, on a good week he would make $12 a week. Uh, but uh, in summer, I've written <laughs> a whole chapter about that in my book that's coming out uh, soon. My dad was raising four toddlers uh, all by himself because my mother died when I was uh, three years old. We were one, two, three, and four years old when she died. But back to my so-called uh, history lesson. 
I'm deeply moved by what I have learned about history, what it truly is, how great or uh, interesting, uh, how, how interesting, um, exciting history, how, it, how it's even made. Uh, you know, the basketball coach slash history teacher would throw out some dates and you know the pattern, and uh, we, the students, were graded on how precisely we could throw those dates back at him at some uh, test time, having memorized them just as he gave them to us with his head down into that spiral notebook. I began my transformation, my excitement, uh, learning of historical events, you know, what history truly is and what it brings to us, what it does for us, and this transformation uh, continues to this day. A colleague at Cornell University sums it up uh, clearly and precisely. Dr. James Turner, history professor and founding member of the Africana Studies and Research Center at Cornell University, as I said, uh, he states precisely and clearly what history is for us. I was uh, moving toward uh, Jim Turner's statement, Dr. Jim Turner, Dr. James Turner. I was, I was moving towards uh, his statement, his uh, explanation, and uh, on my own, but he said it so well. Um, I left my high school uh, teacher's class. Jim says, history is not just about a series of dates and facts, but more importantly, it involves interpretation and analysis and a point of view. Dr. Jim Turner says, history is not just about a series of dates and facts, but more importantly, involves interpretation, it involves analysis, it involves a point of view. Historical knowledge, historical understanding, he says, shapes public consciousness and thus politics and policy. I believe if we, we the people, if we would bring honest analysis and interpretation to some bothersome events and it would point us to a view that might well be very different and even a healing, a kind of healing that we certainly need today. And there is a crying need. There is a crying need, I think you would agree, for a lot of various kinds of healing. But I want to look briefly at the transformative movement to which I have given and still give via showing a large part, sharing a large part of my life. I begin by telling some and reminding some of you who know something of that part of our history, the movement to advance democracy in this country, the way Dr. Vincent Harding uh, states the great civil rights struggle. Uh, I want to share with you the moment at which I knew something was stirring inside of me and I would be moved to do something um, uh, different. I remember it really set me on a path of thinking in a new way about what life was like. I think I was around 10 years old and uh, 
uh, in Goldsboro, North Carolina, a little boy was riding his bicycle down uh, the part of my street, and uh, <clears throat> you could tell where the black folk lived because uh, the pavement stopped after it got through the white, I hate those terms, white and black, and referring to people by color. That's going to be a great uh, uh, research project for somebody to find some new language by which we describe ourselves. I mean, uh, you're not white, your jacket is, but uh, you're not. If, if, you, if you were that color, I'd call the ambulance and get you to the hospital. <laughs> so, uh, and Andrew Young says about me, Andrew says, uh, in, in Andrew's book, he says, and Dorothy, you are a pecan tan. So you all take notice, I am a pecan tan. But we don't have the language, and uh, I think there's something not quite right, and now people of color is this. I was uh, walking across the campus at Stanford University with Dr. Vincent Harding, and I'm running on about the stupidity of that statement, people of color, and I said, and Vincent, and, and people use that term like, like there's some people who have no color. And, and I don't know if you know Vincent, Dr. Vincent Harding, very staid, formal professor, and he said, uh, Dorothy, uh, I brought that statement forward. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so uh, I've got to, maybe I need to be more careful in terms of how I uh, share my view so candidly and energetically. And, uh, but I think, we, I think it's a challenge. I'm throwing that out. I hope that somebody will begin to work on that. It will be a history. It will be a, a, a real a transformation, uh, I think, for us to begin to have, uh, to look at how we describe ourselves and how we speak, uh, speak about and identify ourselves. Uh, I want to share with you uh, briefly uh, uh, when the little when the boy riding his bicycle did I finish that who said uh, <laughs> I maybe I should have stuck to the manuscript <laughs> but, <laughs> but this is the the little boy riding down uh, Greenleaf Street he was singing a song did anybody in here old enough to remember deep in the heart of Texas anybody well this little boy was singing deep in the heart of Niggertown and uh, it's interesting that how at that age I was really stirred by that. I was angered by that even as a child, that this little boy would ride down my street uh, kicking up the dust. As I said, the pavement stopped after it got through the white section of town. And uh, uh, so I think about that as the po a point at which something came to consciousness in, for me. Uh, something, it, it was a sort of a demarcation line. And I knew it made me know that something was not right. How dare he ride through my neighborhood? Uh, you know, using that kind of uh, language. And uh, I want to fast forward to the time that I met Dr. King. I have a note here that I share that and have written about that uh, more than once. But uh, I met uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, not very far from here in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, and he came up to speak at uh, our mass meeting and uh, the reason he came was because we were struggling against the pattern of uh, black folk not being able to use the library as other folk. Can you imagine that? And uh, we were, so we had our little movement going there in Petersburg, Virginia, uh, just struggling against. I have the letter that we wrote to the city council uh, trying to tear down that pattern and uh, talk about a historical event. We, and we were not the, uh, you know, we were not the only ones struggling against that pattern. Uh, and we could spend time, too much time, uh, sharing some of the manifestations. And you know some. Someone just shared one for me, with me, about the, the water fountains. You know, that was colored water and white water. And uh, well, 
Uh, and uh, but there are just many, many manifestations. You know, you've heard many times probably that uh, anybody that looks like me could buy a dress, but I could not uh, could not try it on in the store. And anyway, could there, there are just long, long lists of the manifestation of our what I call our um, American style apartheid uh, situation. And uh, but this young preacher came up from uh, Montgomery to Petersburg, Virginia, where I was uh, uh, where I had finished college. College and got buried and stayed there. And uh, we had, uh, we, we were marching. We walked in front of the Woolworth store with our picket signs. And uh, I'll never forget because we could chop at every counter in the store. I know I'm telling you stuff you already know, right? Everybody know this. We couldn't, we couldn't sit at that lunch counter. And I always say, I don't know who wants to eat at that crappy old lunch counter anyway. <laughs> but 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 we, we could shop at every counter in the store, but we couldn't sit at the, we couldn't go to the lunch counter. And you, and you know that four students in Greensboro, North Carolina, who decided to sit in. And anyway, the sit-in movement spread all over. But Dr. King being there, in coming up to speak for us, uh, invited us, Reverend Y.T. Walker, who I was active in his church, uh, invited us to move to Atlanta. And I told my then husband, uh, uh, George Cotton, George, I, I'm going to go down and help them out for two or three months. I'm invited. We're invited because I was very active in protesting uh, the discriminatory patterns in Petersburg, Virginia. And I'll go down and help them out for about three months. And George drove me down to Atlanta, and I stayed 23 years. I really should apologize to George. But uh, uh, but uh, I lied. Uh, but I didn't know this great movement, this movement to transform uh, our country, which it did. I didn't know that it was going to become my life. I want to fast forward. I'm going to look at just some little notes I made here. So I did move to Atlanta. And one day, Dr. King pulled his chair up in front of my desk. And I was working as an administrative assistant with Reverend Walker, who uh, was invited to come down and become the executive director of this uh, burgeoning organization called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, But he pulled a chair up in front of my desk and started asking me a lot of questions. And I realized that uh, Dr. King was uh, interviewing me. Shortly after that, to fast forward, I was asked to go over to the Highlander Folk School and, uh, and get to know what they were doing in a particular training program there. And I have a sense that some of you probably know about the Highlander Folk School, developed by uh, Miles Horton, who became fascinated by the whole concept of folk schools. And I did go over there and discovered uh, uh, and learned about uh, this, uh, this, at least the, the seeds were really pramped planted there. Actually, the program I really want to talk about, which was my job at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, it really started on a rickety old bus with a fellow named Esau Jenkins. Um, on You know, the little islands off the coast of Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, on John's Island, a white man shot a black young boy uh, because the boy ran over his dog. Well, the dog actually ran out in front of the car, and uh, but the, this white guy shot the boy, killed the boy, and uh, but the people on John's Island, uh, predominantly functionally illiterate, um, and, and did nothing. They didn't rise up in righteous indignation. And uh, the fellow who was using his uh, this uh, school bus to drive people back and forth to work from the islands to Charleston, the mainland, it was a part of his. He was very entrepreneurial. As a matter of fact, uh, September Clark said Esau Jenkins uh, uh, driving this bus. Uh, he had a. He had a. Third grade education, but a PhD mine, if you can dig it. <laughs> 
third grade education, but he knew the people didn't rise up in righteous indignation because they had no political power. Now, what I have just said it really uh, is the germ of a program that helped change this our American style of apartheid. Because Esau started, he put the, the application form for voter registration on the front of that old bus as he was driving back, because he knew that something was wrong, that people didn't rise up in righteous indignation when the boy was shot. And uh, <clears throat> he met Septima Clark. Septima Clark in Charleston was a school teacher who got fired because she wouldn't say whether or not she was a member of the NAACP or not. Uh, fast forward, they met each other and ended up, because uh, people on the other islands, there was John's Island where Esau Jenkins lived and Septima was helping him there. Uh, uh, now people coming together to learn about uh, uh, what it meant to really be a citizen. But they ended up having workshops over at the Highlander Folk School. Uh, the, uh, and, and can you believe black and white folk were, could come together there at a time when it was illegal? That's why you had, uh, oh yeah, you really have to say that in quotes. Anytime black and white folk were together, there go those words again, um, that the people, um, you would be you would be attacked. You would I could spend time talking about the horrible things that would happen if black and white folk were seen together. And uh, uh, reminds me of uh, you know when those when those Navy SEALs did what they did. You know took out what's his name the bad guy. <laughs> I said my dad could not have been one of those Navy SEALs. My dad, in the Navy, went to Atlanta with three of his white Navy buddies. And those three, his Navy buddies went into a restaurant to eat and to get some food. And my dad, also in his Navy uniform, could not even go in the restaurant. And it's something that brings me to tears even now because uh, not that I needed my daddy to be, uh, I don't know why that reminded me about my dad being in the Navy. And that event, what makes me really sad, because daddy said he would never go back to Atlanta again. And I wish till this day that I could say, Daddy, you can go back to Atlanta now because one of my best friends is the mayor of the city. And, uh, and, and uh, you can go into City Hall and you can even use the executive restroom. And, uh, and, and you can meet the mayor of the city. You can go in any restaurant, Daddy. And I know you didn't understand what my work's been about, but that's what it has been about, that to change that pattern, that system that would allow you to be treated that way. Okay, back to the citizenship education. We began when SCLC inherited that program, citizenship training, because uh, the state of Tennessee was shutting down Highlanders. A lot I could say about that, but uh, don't need to do that. But because black, Miles Horton would allow black and white folk to come together to discover how to solve their own problems. And uh, what we did, Septima Clark, Andrew Young, uh, Bernice Robinson, what we did was enhance the curriculum. I say that in quotes because what was on the curriculum was what people needed to study, what they needed to learn. I want to say something a bit about the citizenship education program, because as director of education for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, it was my job to now take that program, because they were shutting down the Highlander Folk School where uh, uh, Esau Jenkins and Septima were working, uh, helping people really mostly with literacy training. But we inherited the program, and we enhanced the curriculum, and we were bringing people not only from all the islands around Charleston, people were coming um, and bringing their, we would go into cities and tell 
people. We have this program here, and we have funds to uh, bring you. We can take care of your travel. We can take care of your food. And they would stay five days into a citizenship education workshop. This is really important because the, citizen, the citizenship education program actually is the program that really facilitated our having massive numbers of people who spread out again across the southern and border states and began to work in a way that changed this country. Now, I've written a lot of notes here about change and how change happens, and I won't spend too much time there, but I just, I really want to just share what could happen with people that we had recruited from all the southern and border states every month, 40, 50, 60 people who would come into a workshop. And uh, see, people don't know this. People are writing about the civil rights movement. And they think that Martin Luther King fell down from the sky somewhere and, 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 and broke down segregation. I want you to know that he, and he, Dr. King was the first one to say this. In his first book, he will say, the, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott, he didn't start the Montgomery bus boycott, and I know some of you know that. What really happened was some, a group of women, and you can research this, the organization, uh, that, uh, this women's organization, decided that they were going to protest the, the fact that black folk were so insulted and treated with such, um, with such disdain and ugliness, they would, buses used to have two doors. You, you drop your money in the receptacle at the front door, and you had, black folk had to step off and go to the back door and get back on. I see a couple of heads going up and down, you know about that. But before the black folk could get back on the bus, guess what? The bus would take off, and there was nothing that could be done about it. So the day that Rosa Parks decided she's not going to move to the back of the bus, because uh, white folk feel from the front, black folk from the back, uh, she decided she was not going to move to the back. And actually, she was sitting in um, the, la the row that began the black section. But when a white man got on and needed a seat, um, and it, Rosa Parks uh, didn't move. And you know, I'm sure, the rest of that story. Uh, talk about history. It's a historical event that is incredibly important. Uh, it may seem little and slight light to you, but I want you to know these humble, ordinary people, uh, maybe we're all ordinary in, in a sense, but the people who came into those citizenship education workshops came in because there was a, a rumbling, there was a feeling, there was a sense that, uh, that we have to change this evil system. And it was spreading like wildfire, as the saying goes, all over the place, at least the southern and border states. And we, we would, Andrew Young, Septon McClark, and I would travel the, to these states, and we would tell people that we had this program, and will you come? You, people were fighting on, had a different focus for their struggle in these various cities. This is the story, the story of this training program that doesn't get talked about. Every time uh, or people, it didn't happen today, thank goodness, but folks say, oh, you marched with Dr. King, and they think of the civil rights struggle as a bunch of marches. Well, folk didn't just jump up and march, and uh, nor did he tell Rosa Parks not to move to the back of the bus, nor did he tell those students to stay, sit at the lunch counter where they could shop at all the counters except that one. He didn't tell them that, and Dr. King, again, uh, read his first book, and he'll tell you you. He, in no uncertain terms, he did not start it. And that's, that's a little bit bothersome. As much as I love Dr. King, and we all did, we were a, a very powerful team and really deeply respected him and his, uh, the, the, his persona and the, his, his quiet leadership, but powerful uh, leadership. But uh, people would come into the workshops, and we would talk about the problems that they brought. I'll never forget uh, 
Miss Fannie Lou Hamer coming to a workshop, and uh, she's from Ruleville, Mississippi. And Mrs. Hamer, I said, would you introduce the three or four people that you brought from the Delta of Mississippi? And uh, we're going to be together for five days, and I really would like for people to uh, just hear a little bit about what you're struggling with at home. And she said, well, Ms. Cotton, uh, uh, I want you to know I'm, I'm happy to do that. But first, I've got to share with you what we are going through. And guess how she shared it? She shared it by singing one of the old sorrow songs, and she had a big booming voice. And anybody ever heard the term the sorrow songs? Uh, do I hear? Yeah, maybe a couple over there. The sorrow, well, let me show you what a sorrow song is. She's going to introduce her people, but before, she, she had the whole group singing, I've been in the storm so long. I've been in the storm so long, children. I've been in the storm so long. Give me a little time to pray. Now, if you have the courage and you don't feel like you have to be formal, I want you to do that with me. I've been in the storm so long, I've been in the storm so long, children, I've been in the storm so long, give me a little time to pray, give me a little, now those folk over there didn't sing, so we got to do it again. <laughs> I've been in the storm so long, I've been in the storm so long, children, I've been in the storm so long. Give me a little time to pray. Give me a little time to pray. And she would go on, oh, let me tell you, sister, just how I come along. Give me a little time to pray. Uh, give me, uh, let me tell you, brother, just how I come along. Give me. And so she, and they were going through, uh, Pap, as she called her husband, had to take her to the next town because they had been threatened to be put off that little shack of a house that they had on that plantation. And uh, he took her to the next county for protection. And she called Pap one day and said, I want you to come get me. I'm not going to run anymore. And uh, because she was working to get those folk who worked on the plantation, and they were people of color, to use that uh, ridiculous phrase, um, she, she wanted, she wanted to, uh, everybody, Mr. Marlowe's plantation, the very owners to know she was not going to run anymore. So he brought her back. But guess what? They're in this workshop now. See 40, 50, or 60 people sitting there in a workshop. I want you to know about this workshop because I want you to know we didn't just jump up in March. And this training program went on for at least eight years. And, um, but I would say my main session in the citizenship education program was about just that, citizenship, civic functioning. And I remember asking uh, the group, what's a citizen? And people would say things, well, if you love God, if you don't break the law, if you treat your neighbor right, answers like that. But somebody would flash on the fact that there was some kind of law. Oh, yes, the Constitution, that word would go up on the chalkboard. Now, we had recruited people from, uh, you know, some, the southern and border states, 40, 50, 60, every single month. And uh, they'd stay together five days. And when I'd ask them, what's a citizen, with those kinds of answers. And, you know, I was excited when somebody realized there was some kind of law. I'm, I'm telling you what happened in the citizenship training program now. Somebody said that there was a law. Yep. And after it goes up there, guess what that law has? It has something called amendments. And uh, guess what these people, uh, with the third grade educations, many of them, but they were powerful leaders and motivators in their town. And uh, 
I said, yep, and uh, what does it say, that amendment? And we talk about what an amendment was. Um, yeah, all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States. But these people who came nervous and, uh, and, and not, not afraid, but, but just kind of nervous and not knowing what they were going to get into, these people started to sit a little tall when they realized that if that supreme law of the land, a phrase we used a lot, if that says I'm a citizen, we had a big discussion in terms of what that meant. What does it mean to be a citizen? And no state, we could, to paraphrase, can take away your privilege as citizen. Now, you could see a bunch of black folks, you know, sitting in a lot of places with not quite, you know, sitting tall, standing tall. I'll tell you, I'll tell you there the, the title of the book I'm doing. It's uh, about finished now. And uh, I asked Dr. King one day, I called him, can you come over and sh close down the workshop? I mean, and give us a, the people a send off. And uh, he did come over from Atlanta to just south of Savannah there. And um, guess what he said to those 40, 50, or 60 folk at the, the last day of the workshop? And they'd made a little banquet, pulled greenery off the bushes outside and all that. Dr. King said, nobody can ride your back if your back's not bent. Now, see that as a metaphor for people who have been so oppressed. See that as a metaphor for people who... Uh, who had been so beaten down. And Dr. King said more than once that it's a terrible thing when a society so structures itself that it treats one segment of the population as though it is less than other people. But it's even worse when that group of people so abused, when they internalize that definition of themselves as being less than other people, that you can even show, that it even shows in their manner. You know, just sort of a, even if they're not saying anything, kind of a stooped look. You know, you know what happens when you feel like a victim and you feel beat down and like anybody can you relate to that so anyway I chose the the title of my book uh, if your back's not bent the movement from victim to victory that's what this training program is all about and this is a historical event an historical event that helped change this country in a big way I want you to know, gosh, I've got to really run along here because I want to mention um, some people who have left powerful marks on the sands of time, as the saying goes. Um, but I want you to know that training that went on for all these years and people that spread out across the southern and border states and their cities and towns were never the same again. Now, when they, about the third day, when I'm doing my session, what's a citizen and dialoguing about that, I want you to know that by by the third day, they were not stooped anymore. They were not feeling as victims because now they've discovered the 14th Amendment. But it was only it, it would only manifest into their into their lives and being if they brought life to it themselves. That's very very important. As long as it's just on paper, it can read like a poem. But until they brought it alive and made it active, made it operative in their lives, until they themselves did that, yeah, change was going to come, but it was going to come uh, only if they made the change come. And by the third day, people were sitting a little taller. They were no longer singing the old sorrow songs. Guess what they were singing? I'm going to do what the Spirit says do. Anybody know it? I'm going to do what the Spirit says do. What? The Spirit says do, I'm going to do, oh Lord, I'm going to do what the Spirit says. Now, my, one of my nieces said, uh, Gwen, uh, uh, now, Dorothy, don't you go up there thinking all those white folks going to sing with you. <laughs> now, I want to be able to go tell her, yes, they did. <laughs> 
I'm gonna do what the Spirit says do. I'm gonna do what the Spirit says do. What the Spirit says do, I'm gonna do, oh Lord. I'm gonna do what the Spirit. They were understanding what political power was. They knew they had to vote. Because if the politicians don't pay any attention to you, nor today if you don't vote. I'm gonna vote when the Spirit says vote, everybody. I'm gonna vote when the Spirit says vote. When the Spirit says vote, I'm gonna vote, oh Lord. I'm gonna work cause the spirit says work. I'm gonna work cause the spirit says work. When the spirit says work, I'm gonna work. Cause now those people up there must have PhDs and they think they can't sing. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you'd be surprised. That's another thing we did in those days of the PhDs and the no Ds work together to to bring to bring, you know, we'd still be sitting on the back of the bus if we waited for University of Cornell, where I worked for 10 years, uh, nine and a half years, and uh, we'd still be sitting on the back of the bus if we waited for, for the PhD. I don't mean to put down PhD. You know, but <laughs> but you, you get the point. You know, we get educated out of our spirit, and sometimes, sometimes our, our programs don't, don't flourish because we lose the spirit of the work, and that's what we need to bring. Uh, we're putting together, some colleagues are putting together an organization, they're calling it the Dorothy Cotton Institute, I am honored, but I told them, if you're gonna talk like all the folk at Cornell, and, and uh, it's not to put down, <laughs> it's not to put down Cornell, but if you're gonna use all that academic language, uh, you're not gonna bring the people that we work with in the Citizenship Education Program, the people who really change this country. Okay, I know I'm gonna move to uh, closure, and don't know what I've said that had any uh, meaning for you, but I do want you to <laughs> I do want you to know that thing and you know it things can change things can change and and we need to be aware that things can change and fast forward to now the 21st century there are people around who are uh, just agonizing over the fact that nothing is going to ever change well uh, it has been said has it not that uh, uh, you know nothing nothing changes and uh, you know things are always the same but uh, it's said more poetically than that but what I know is that, and you know it, uh, things can change. And the, the, oh, I know the saying is the more things change, the more they stay the same. There's probably some truth in both of those uh, statements, the way that is put. But the fact that there are people now who feel as a man who owns a service station where I live, he said, I'm not going to bother to, uh, to vote because what I do does not matter. And as long as we have massive numbers of folks saying that, all the wonderful documents on which this country was founded, the wonderful documents will indeed mean nothing. We have to bring life to them, like those people who had to discover that uh, the 14th Amendment meant them. If they didn't understand that it meant them, they would, we'd still be riding on the back of the bus. We'd still be, as Dr. King said, nobody can ride your back. They'd still be with the bent backs, uh, looking pitiful, looking like victims. But when you no longer feel like a victim and you claim your power, we could talk a long time about power. I want to uh, speak for just a, a minute or just refer to, you know, some of, some of the people, and you know, you know many of them, people who left footprints, as they say, on the sands of time. And there are people who... Uh, who think of themselves uh, again 
as being uh, powerless. And, uh, and we know, I know, I mean, that's really not true. I say that we are on a journey. We're on a journey, and, uh, and the journey continues. There was a time when I thought, oh, you know, we fixed everything. We broke down the barriers. You know, we can go in places now. And, uh, but even though, you know, we've come through, I consider that just one leg of the journey, that, uh, you know, we made some, some inroads, and, uh, but it's not fixed yet. You know, Dr. King asked in his uh, last book, where do we go from here? And uh, of course, we have to decide where there is, where are we going from here? And I wonder how clear you are on where we need to go from here. Where are we going from here? Well, you remember that, uh, anybody old enough to remember, I think it was a commercial, there are children in the backseat of the car, and they are, um, they are constantly asking the parents, uh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, uh, and so I thought, if, if I wanted to use that as a metaphor, I had to decide where, where, there, where is there for us. We, we're not there yet. And I ask you, where is there? Where is it we want to go? How many of us are clear about where we want to go? I say again, I say, I'm saying this a lot these days, that we're on a journey, and we just, it's not fixed and probably will never be all fixed because we get to one part of the journey. It's like driving from here to California. You know, you get to a part and you stop and rest, and uh, you, uh, you, know, you, make some, you make some progress, but you're not there yet and, uh, in terms of your goal. I, maybe that's a, a messed up metaphor there, but you get the point. Uh, we are not there yet. Where do we go from here? Uh, Dr. King's um, you know, title of, of uh, his very, uh, probably his most well-read uh, book. And uh, think about where there is for you. Where is there? Where are we heading? What historical event will people be studying when some of us are long gone from the planet? What will they be studying? What will they be looking at that you brought you to the scene? And uh, I made a little list here. Um, now, wherever there is, if, I, if you think about the end as a very, in a very positive way, we are not there yet because xenophobia is rampant. You know, fear of those seen as different from ourselves. We're not there yet because there's too much crime and too much punishment. Rather than teaching and exposing young people uh, to models of positive values that will help us towards our goal, we are not there yet. If you're thinking of there as a positive end goal, we're not there yet because we still need to accept our calling as contributing citizens, not like the man who owns the service station that said to me he wasn't going to vote because it didn't matter. Uh, we still need to, need to accept our calling. We the people is just empty words if we don't decide that it really means us to create what Dr. King liked to call the beloved community. We're not there yet because our educational system needs overhauling. Else we will leave for our world youngsters who have not been exposed to the joys, the fulfillment of a great education. Leaving them, allowing them to be pulled onto negative, destructive paths when they need exposure to great dreams and noble values that will indeed help build a better world. Who are their role models today? And I, I shudder when I think it might be Lady Gaga. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, who, are, who are their role models? 
And uh, and I, I may, I, you know, not to put Lady Gaga, but I get worried if that's if that's the role model. Is it is are there role models who ever got in a room somewhere and said that young guys ought to wear the seat of their pants down to their knees? I mean, is is that are those their leaders? Who who are, who are who's modeling a beha behavior now? I just I throw it out rhetorically and invite us all to put some energy uh, into those questions. Who are the role models? No, we're not there yet because we have too many young people on a path to prison rather than on a path towards getting an education. And I'm not so much interested in the blame game. Rather, I'm interested in an honest analysis of how the negative happens and using our insight, our analysis to help focus our work, our work uh, in the world. We are not there yet because women are beaten in some parts of the world because they are out without a male member of their family. And I, that's, I have such a situation recorded on my television. Three men are beating these women because they're out without a male member of their family. And one guy, uh, I mean, not only are they beating them and they're all into their burkas and all well covered, but there's no male member of the family. Maybe she did, they didn't have a brother you know, or husband, or maybe they had to be at work. And a young man who went up in my esteem, he said, one of those men doing the beating could have said, I will walk with you, because a friend of mine, I told him I was going to say this, he said, well, you know, not any man could walk with him. It had to be a member of the family. And no, but they weren't interested in finding out whether, whether there was a male member of the family. This is happening now, folks, and I'm sure many of you know, know that. And I, Dr. King said, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. We're not there because we too readily think that we can solve problems by going to war, not allowing ourselves to understand deeply the ways of nonviolent struggle for change, a teaching that helps us to connect with the spark of divinity present in all of us and needing only to be stirred, to be ignited in one who approaches people and issues with violence. We're not there yet because we have not yet learned to have respectful dialogue when there are those who have different opinions. We're too often ignorant of, the, ignorant of the fact that wonderful growth can occur if we allow ourselves to hear the other. I could go on. I wrote a lot of reasons why we are not there yet. I, I will move to closure with this little story. A, a little boy, uh, I read this a long time ago. I've never forgotten it. This little boy, um, uh, w was walking home from uh, Sunday school, and uh, he looked on top of the church and he saw a model of you know the figure of Jesus on the cross. Uh, and, and if you anybody ever seen any a model like that? Nobody. Am I the only one? Okay, a few here. Well, the little boy looked up, a uh, little boy, and saw that. And guess what the little boy did? He climbed to the top of the church and pulled that figure of Jesus off the that cross. And I'm not talking about anyone, anybody's religious faith or whatever. I'm just talking about this little boy's experience. And so somebody called and said, this little boy is uh, defacing uh, this property. And uh, they took him to the jail and, and so sit there. We're going to call your parents. And when your parents uh, get here, we'll have a discussion about it. So when the parents got there, the little boy was shaking uh, with tears. I love telling this story because there's such a lesson in it uh, for me. He, he said, uh, in amidst his tears, he said, well, uh, I was just at Sunday school. And, uh, and they taught us that, yeah, Jesus was up on that cross, but, uh, but, uh, but he came down and continued his work in the world. But somebody forgot to take him down.
And so the little boy climbed up there to take him down. He was bringing to light that Sunday school lesson. And I thought, suppose we felt as strongly about seeing something that's not right and, and deciding that we are going to do something about it. If there was time, we'd have to have one of those five-day workshops to look at leadership, you know, to look at uh, you know, people uh, feeling like they are impotent, can do nothing, and imagine having people come alive with the thought, with the sense, with the feeling that there is something that they can do. Uh, I really will close with this. I have so much stuff scribbled here that I'd like to refer to, but I, want, I would invite you, and I've made a long list of people, as I said earlier, who have left uh, powerful marks on the sands of time. And I have people from William Shakespeare, Harriet Tubman, Eleanor Roosevelt, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, born in a log cabin, but look what he did, Rosa Parks, Michelangelo, Mother Teresa, but did I say Marian Anderson? I mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer, and um, I, I even wrote at the bottom here, Obama's mama. <laughs> <laughs> Did, did you hear him say she used to wake him up something like 4 o'clock in the morning and make him get his lesson? How many mothers do you see that interested in making sure their sons study their lessons and get, you know, it's like, uh, well, anyway, we, you know what we could do with that. But, uh, but if we don't do the thing that we see that's not working right, if we don't put some energy into it, if we don't do that, then, you know, who is going to do it? Uh, sometimes people talk as though they think Martin Luther King is going to fall out of the sky and come back and fix everything. And we know no one person can fix everything. You know, neither Obama nor nobody can fix everything. You get the point. Nobody can. No one person can fix uh, everything. I would just ask you um, to, as I really uh, close now, to think about think about a hundred years from now, and you've gone on to the great beyond. Just imagine, fantasize with me just a little bit. I, I love inviting people to uh, think about coming back. Just pretend you are a big bird flying over. And you look down and you see everything working beautifully. You know, the senior citizens, older folk are, are, uh, are respected and taken care of. You look down and you see school systems you know, that are really inspiring. Uh, children to learn and the teachers who are really inspired to teach and, and plant a seed. I think about my English teacher and anybody who's ever heard me speak, I think I mention it every time I talk about whatever, my English teacher who said when I said a poem so wonderfully in her class, as I went to my seat, she said, there's your ready girl. And after all these years, I remember what my English teacher said, how she honored me because I said that poem so well. And uh, can you imagine a teacher telling a child, you're gonna amount to nothing? I've had students tell me that teachers have said things like that. I'm sure there are no teachers in this room who would do that. But, uh, but if, if we would just think about uh, you know, what did I do? As you look down, go back to that <laughs> bird metaphor there. You look down and you see everything working beautifully. Instead of people on their way to jail, they're more on their way to Yale. And how is that so? How did that transformation take place? What are we doing? Can we be as strong in our sense that something needs to be worked on, that we will bring some energy to it? Can we do that? Then when people study the history, of our time, of our sojourn here, uh, they will remember us as we remember some people on a, again, long list that I have created. We will remember, they will remember uh, us because of the footprints that we left uh, 
on, on the planet where you will look down and you see everything just working so beautifully and you know that uh, you had something to do with making it beautiful, making it perfect. Uh, uh, Amy Bill, one more uh, event like the little boy except different, the Amy Bill story. Uh, Amy Bill, a young white student, was killed by young boys in Cape Town, South Africa. Her parents were there, I was there, her parents were there and started organizing in the very communities where their daughter was killed. Imagine that. And uh, <coughs> this daughter had gone there to help. To, she'd gone there to help, but her parents chose to go to Cape Town and build and work with the very boys, work with that neighborhood from whence those boys came and who violently took their daughter's life. Um, and she, they wanted to be there, the parents, to create a new vision for these boys, new possibilities there. The Amy Beal Foundation is still working, connecting young people in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, to youngsters in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, USA. I was there with the congressional delegation and I saw the Beals uh, working in this neighborhood. We were introduced to the young men, now being transformed because of the work that the Amy Beale Foundation, what a powerful example being, be, being, who said that, the world, be the change you want, Mahatma Gandhi, be the change you want. And uh, there's so much that could be said, but I, I would like us to envision, uh, and uh, I'll close my notes here, and I just, has anybody ever heard We're Climbing Jacob's Ladder? Let me see your hands, don't be timid. Put your hands up, We're Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Well, the same Vincent has Harding who, who quoted, uh, uh, <coughs> I, I told him I didn't like his <laughs> people of color. Vincent wrote some new words to that. We are climbing Jacob's Ladder. He wrote, we are building up a new world. I want to ask you, if you is it the same tune? We are climbing Jacob's Ladder. We are building up a new world. We are building up a new world. We're building up a new world. Builders must be strong. Courage sisters don't get weary. Courage brothers don't get weary. Courage people don't get weary, though the road be long. Rise, shine, give God the glory. Three times, children of the light. The tune is We Are Climbing Jacob's Lab. Do that with me as I make my way to my seat in a minute. We, we are building up a new world, up a new world. We are building up a new world. We are building up a new Builders must be strong. Builders must be Courage, sisters, don't get weary. Courage, sisters, don't get weary. Courage, brothers. Courage, brothers, don't get weary. Courage, people. Courage, everybody. People, don't get Though the road be long, though the road be rise, shine, give God the glory. 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 Children of the light, children of the light. 
Now, I asked them to play a song for you, and I think I've used up enough time, but uh, if, that, if it's on the tape, uh, I'll ask them to play it as I go to my seat. Is anybody listening who could play that song? You know, I uh, live next door to a man, uh, and he had a lot of children, and so did my dad, but we weren't allowed to play together because they were white. But we had two dogs. He had a dog, and we had a dog. And our dogs now were the, always the black dog and white dog could play song. together, but the children dog, couldn't. Dog, 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 my dog loves love your dog, dog, and your dog loves my dog. My dog, all them dogs, all them dogs, all them dogs, all them dogs. I'm talking about a rabbit dog. I'm talking about a rabbit dog. Why can't we? Sit on the apple tree, mind the dog, it was a plan one day. Down in the middle of a bundle of hay. Let's get together and eat this bone. Let's get together. Then why can't we? Sit on the apple tree. You want to walk with me? You want to talk with me? Why don't you hold my hand so we can understand now? Can you see that you and me? Sit under the apple tree. Why can't we across the whole planet? Dorothy, thank you so much. She just said as she came off the stage, I don't know what happened to the Q&A. Well, when you've, when you've gotten all the answers, you don't need to ask the question anymore. I think we've gotten all the answers today. Dorothy, we want to thank you for your stories, your song, and your sweet, sweet spirit that's actually raised our souls today. It's given us an opportunity to perhaps soar, think about the things that we need to do looking back down upon this world 100 years from now. So thank you once again for coming today and sharing with us, helping us remember, helping us to set a new standard for the work that we do. I know that Dorothy will be available, uh, so if, you, if you'd like, I'm sure she wouldn't mind you coming by, but please don't overwhelm her if you come out uh, down front to see her. Thank you once again for attending today's session. Once again, we want to thank the uh, Virginia Humanities Foundation for providing funding for this. Thank you. Thank you.